So on today's podcast, we have Mike J, who is the author of Mescaline, A Global History of the First Psychedelic. And we went deep into the scientific and medical history of mescaline, how peyote was discovered, the religious use behind it, peyote versus San Pedro, phenethylamines versus tryptamines. And you can check out all the topics in the timestamps, which is in the description box below. And if you are watching this on YouTube, uh, feel free to check the Your Mate Tom podcast on Spotify and iTunes and give us a five-star review if you're feeling extra generous. And of course, love to give a massive thank you to all our patrons over at Patreon for sponsoring this channel. You guys are legends and you yeah, really helping us continue what we do. If you did want to support the podcast and toss a coin over to your mate Tommy, then feel free to check out Patreon. We've got some perks over there like early access, exclusive content, things like this. And yeah, man. Oh, also, actually, this is actually really relevant for this podcast because we've got some merch. We've got this cool Mexican skull. If you are watching this on YouTube, sorry for our audio listeners, but you've got a nice San Pedro cactus there with the peyote growing on the top there. So yeah, another way to support the podcast and get yourself some cool merch. And also want to give a shout out to Jason Stevenson, who does awesome guided meditations, which you can check out in the description box below. Also, if you wanted to join our Discord server, completely free, Yep, you guessed it, in the description box below. There's a lot of, lot of things in the description box, so don't want to miss out. <laughs> but yeah, anyways, enjoy the podcast. Give us a like, share, and all that good stuff. Share it with your mates, and uh, I'll catch you guys on the next one. Peace. So I wanted to uh, talk about your journey into this. Like, What was your inspiration behind writing this book in the first place? Why mescaline? Uh, yeah, mes- mescaline is a re- I mean, there's a lot you know, of, of stuff being written about psychedelics at the moment. And there's a lot of people talking about psychedelics. And um, what kind of interests me about mescaline is that if you focus on that and tell its story, you're telling a very different story of psychedelics. Um, I think for two main reasons. Firstly, because, you know, the story that we not normally kind of um, get told is, oh, psychedelics suddenly appeared like in the 50s, you know, or 60s, you know, with the discovery of LSD and all that. Um, and with mescaline, you get a whole different story, you know, because it was um, synthesized in the lab 100 years ago. And before that, you know, back in the 19th century, you know, the first Western scientific investigators were taking peyote. So you get kind of, um, uh, you know, the idea that this has actually been much more sort of, um, you know, rooted in Western culture for a long time and across all kinds of different um, areas, you know, sort of science and medicine, um, but also art and spirituality. So there's loads of great stories there which are mostly untold. Um, And the second reason is that um, even, you know, way, way older than all this kind of uh, older Western history, of course, you've got the indigenous traditions uh, and the use of the masculine cacti. And uh, that's kind of... um, Really interesting, I thought, to tell that story alongside, you know, the Western engagement with psychedelics, because it makes the point that, hey, you know, there's there's lots of different ways of understanding psychedelics. There's lots of different ways they can fit into your culture. You know, we're one, but there are others. Mm. And um, so they're kind of interesting in some ways to compare the Western and indigenous stories. Uh, in other respects, there's, they don't really compare, but you just kind of tell the stories in parallel and you get this, um, you know, you get this, I hope, 
mind-expanding sense, you know, that what we think about psychedelics is just one kind of prism, you know, and uh, in this thing that you can kind of uh, rotate and turn and see it in all kinds of different ways. Yeah, I fa- yeah, I find it interesting that it mescaline is one of the least talked about psychedelics. And, you know, I had my first San Pedro experience about maybe five, about five years ago, and I found it to be one of the most profound ones. And I was like so shocked to think like, hey, how come this... This one's not getting talked about, and why is ayahuasca getting all the attention, you know? And then even just going back on history, like you said, like it goes back before the synthesis of psilocybin and LSD, but it just seems to be in the the shadows, so to speak. Obviously, like with your book now, it's coming to the light, but yeah, I just found it interesting that it, it isn't as talked about or popular compared to the other ones, so... Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the history yeah. about that? Like, how did mescaline even get yeah, discovered? I, yeah, so when I started taking psychedelics, which was in the 80s, you know, there was uh, um, there was acid and there was mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and and that was kind of it. And, of course, you heard about mescaline. And, of course, I avidly read Doors of Perception. Uh, but it was a kind of a legendary substance. And every now and again, you'd meet somebody and they go, oh, I know this really righteous underground chemist who make, made a little batch of mescaline for his sort of connoisseurs, you know. But it was never really it was never really present there. And, uh, you know, that's the way I think it has been through most of kind of, you know, post-60s psychedelic culture. It's been kind of uh, legendary or sort of uh, mythical for most people. And um, the first uh, encounters I really had with it were, um, I've got a friend who's an anthropologist who lives out in Peru, and I spent time out in the Andes and encountered the San Pedro, the Huachuma uh, out there. And, uh, yeah, it was kind of after several years of that that I started to, you know, look around at indigenous traditions and, um, you know, read about the whole Native American church and the Native American engagement with peyote. And, uh, you know, that was how the story started to, to build for me. Hmm. And uh, with the whole religious tradition of peyote, I'm assuming that it was peyote that was the first cactus that was discovered that had mescaline? Yeah, the, um, I mean, there are some uh, kind of accounts by mostly Jesuit missionaries in South America uh, who say, you know, there's this cactus and, um, you know, the Indians eat it and they have visions. And, of course, these visions are produced by the devil and they use it for healing. You know, so you kind of know, um, you know, we know that the use of Wachuma in the Andes goes, um, you know, back to the earliest mm-hmm. Western records. And, you know, for in other ways we know, you know, from uh, art and ar- archaeology, we know it goes way, way back thousands of years um but in terms of the um western encounter with uh what we now know to be mescaline it was uh it, it was the peyote uh and the um first people who really encountered it were um you know it's like at the end of the 19th century there were um uh, explorers in um Mexico started to kind of uh, run into the witch people up in the Sierra Madre but really kind of the main um sort of uh, focus of the sort of uh, transition between the two cultures, between indigenous and white cultures, was the uh, American Southwest and the Native Mm -hmm. Indian reservations down in Oklahoma. And uh, that's where you get the first Western uh, ethnographers and doctors, um, you know, discovering that, uh, you know, the Native American tribes uh, use peyote in their ceremonies and eventually the first... uh, 
um, you know, ethnographers and anthropologists who uh, try it themselves and write about it and then bring it back, you know, to the east coast of America, you know, to the sort of white scientific world. And that's when, like, uh, it all kicks off and you start to get the first Western scientific experiments and people writing about their um, wow. trips. And then pretty much almost immediately, like within three or four years of that, the chemists get on it and um, they isolate the uh, the active ingredient, the one that's causing what they describe as the hallucinations, yeah. uh, and, they, and, they, and they name that mescaline. So mescaline is extracted from the peyote way back, like 1897. Wow. So that's a much longer psychedelic history than we normally get told about. <laughs> and uh, what kind of experiences were they reporting back to the West? Uh, they... Um, I mean, in many ways, a much wider and much more engaged experience than you get from uh, Western science today, mm -hmm. because that was the time when, um, you know, if you were interested in uh, drugs, particularly drugs that affected the mind, um, it was kind of obvious that you would take them yourself and write about your experience. <laughs> you know, these days it's like you're not going to get a, you know, a sort of uh, research grant to do that. You know, <laughs> it, it, you know it's maybe we should. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's now about, you know, you've got to sort of, uh, you know... You've got um, to stay objective, right? <laughs> yeah, you've got to stay objective. You've got to study brain scans. That's as close to the experience as you're uh, allowed to get. So uh, it's great going back into the first scientific encounters because in many ways they're much more kind of radical and much more engaged mm. and much more varied. So uh, you get, um, you know, so, you know, in the, you know, before... You know, before the 20th century even starts, um, you know, peyote uh, and mescaline have been uh, examined from almost every point of view. You know, there are kind of neurologists and psychologists taking it and trying to describe an experience and trying to figure out what's going on in the in, in, in the brain when this is happening. But there's also, you know, people who are much more interested in spiritual experience, you know, trying to figure out, uh, you know, what's going on and what the meaning of these visions is. And there's also... Um, you know, people who are, you know, really kind of, um, you know, sort of philosophers and art critics who kind of are writing about the experience on this sort of aesthetic um, level, describing what they're seeing and how beautiful it is and how they're getting lost in, you know, sort of really kind of uh, great experiential uh, descriptions. And this is a time when, um, you know, uh, doctors particularly are taught to... Um, describe symptoms really really well it's really important and i mean these days of course it's just like it's just like a tick box diagnosis tick 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 you never have to describe anything yeah. uh, in those days if you're a good doctor you had to kind of you know be able to really describe you know what symptoms a patient was presenting um and so when they get uh, you know turned loose on psychedelics their descriptions are amazingly good and a lot of them are you know, not just doctors and chemists, but they're also, you know, writers and poets. Mm. So, you know, it's a great, great psychedelic literature, that those first encounters. Wow. And uh, was the primary use for mescaline for spiritual experiences and healing? Was it, was there anything else? Like, were there any people, because I know that you said the, the, the missionaries called it that it was like from the devil or whatever. Were there any sort of black magic practices when it came to mescaline or using cacti? Yeah, I mean, in, um, that was part of the um, the encounter with uh, peyote uh, that happened. Like the first Western encounter was really when the Spanish arrived to 
um, conquer the, the Mexica, the Aztecs in, in, in Mexico. Yeah. And, um, yeah, they described it in terms of sort of uh, black magic and sorcery. And it was um, it was suppressed there by the ex by the um, Inquisition mm -hmm. uh, in 1620. So that was like actually the first Western kind of prohibition of a psychoactive drug. And after that, you know, yeah, there was a lot of kind of concern that it was being used, you know, by um, not so much by um, the Indian population, but by mestizos and Spanish as kind of um, uh, part of witchcraft and things. But once the um, scientific research um, kicks in in the 19th century, uh, you get, um, uh, you know, pe you, you, you get... I'd, First of all, sort of ideas of, um, you know, some of the first ethnographers talking about how uh, um, how it's used in Native American ceremonial practices. So that gets quite well understood. Uh, and from pretty early on, you have find some people starting to use it in ritual and ceremonial practices. I mean, probably the one best remembered today is Alastair Crowley, you know, in the sort of mm -hmm. 1910s and 1920s, Crowley used what he called anhelonium, you know, which was peyote extract, basically, in a lot mm. of his uh, ceremonies. And some other ones that are much less known that I was really surprised to discover, like around the same time, uh, the president of the uh, Mormon church, you know, one of the branches of the Mormon church, uh, um, was advocating for using peyote in uh, Mormon um, worship. So, uh, you know, because there was a sort of strong feeling around that time, you know, sort of uh, that the world was becoming kind of very dull and mechanical and industrial and it was uh, being disenchanted, as we now say, you know, and a lot of people were interested in something that could, uh, you know, kind of bring this sort of um, dead modern world back to life and, uh, you know, bring back all those kind of spiritual and ecstatic experiences that were being lost, you know. So that was also, uh, you know, that was propelling, you know, people like Crowley and ritual magicians, but it was also, you know, more mainstream kind of religious groups were looking at this. And, uh, yeah, Frederick Smith, who was the um, president of this Mormon group, was uh, there's the grandson of uh, Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormons. Oh, wow. You know, he, uh, he believed that, um, you know, it was very important that, uh, you know, ceremonies should be really spiritually uplifting. This wasn't just about shuffling into church and listening to some words. People should come out having had like a real religious experience. Mm. And of course, being based in, in, in Utah, as they were in the southwest, um, they were kind of engaged with Native American tribes, mostly trying to convert them. But, uh, yeah, Frederick Smith spent time in the teepee. He did some sort of, uh, you know, Native American trips. He was very, um, uh, you know, instrumental in defending their rights, you know, to uh, a, a American government who were trying to shut things down. So he was a great advocate for the Native American church. And, uh, yeah, it was kind of, uh, he was like, you know, this is this is what we need in our day and age. This is just what we're missing. So wow. that sense there from the beginning, too. Wow. So he's basically claiming, hey, why read, you know, the word of God when you can experience the word of God kind of thing? Yeah, it seems like, well, psychedelics in general, well, what I've noticed anyway is that it, the experiences vary from all extreme ends of polarity. You know, one person can use it to for black magic and, you know, like the, the Aztecs, for example, they were using mushrooms and they sacrificed and cut the heads off who knows how many humans and then other people are using it to sing to Jesus. So it's like so varied. And I, I think that's why it's accurate to call these substances tools, right? Because you can use them for either side.
but that, that's just my take on it anyway. No, that's mine too. I like the, that's what Stanislav Grof called them, non-specific amplifiers, you know. So exactly. that's why I kind of get suspicious when people start saying too much about, oh, psychedelics do this, you know, they connect you to nature. Yeah, for sure, they connect <laughs> you to nature really, really powerfully, but they can also do the opposite, you know. Exactly. Just they the, can uh, connect you to nature. Know, I think that's the wording we need to use. You know, the way that um, psychedelics allow you to inhabit a totally digital technological world you know that's kind of the opposite of being immersed in nature and hey they can do that too exactly uh, yeah yeah so i think it's it's wise to not attach ourselves too much of our direct experience of like oh the psychedelic told me this because then you know another person says the complete opposite so it's it's hard to really tell and these experiences yeah. are so personal you know like you said they're non well like groff said it's non-specific amplifiers of consciousness so. That's right. And that's why I find the um, all this kind of early me mescaline experiments and stuff so interesting is now we kind of take a psychedelic and we kind of know what psychedelics are. We have a culturally received idea. And mm. it's so fascinating to read people taking them, you know, in the 19th century, in the 1920s, you know, when there was no kind of culturally received idea of what this was supposed to do. So you get people like kind of surrealist artists taking them and, um, mm. you know, it's like psychiatrists taking them and sort of spiritual practitioners and everybody goes in a real different direction. And it's so interesting to look at now because uh, quite often with that stuff, you can look at it and you can recognize it immediately. But in other ways, you know, lots of early psychedelic experiences are very strange because they don't fit into the little psychedelic box that we've now constructed. Mm. Yeah, I see that even like uh, particularly with ayahuasca, for example, like we paint this picture of like it's mother ayahuasca, it connects you to the Amazon and, you know, we can, you know, have a long list that millions of people say the same thing. And is it, that we're being primed to having these experiences or is it that these experiences are inherent? Sort of like a chicken and egg sort of question. Who knows at this point? Yeah, it is. And there's also, you know, there's a little spark gap there between the actual experience that you have and the way that you frame it and kind of explain it's, it. Exactly. You know, so you can, you have the experience and you go, oh, that reminds me of, you know, Terence McKenna's description of a machine elf. And then you say, I saw the machine elves when I took DMT and it's like, no, you didn't actually see the machine elves. You saw something, and then there was a ready label for you to slap on it, you know. But let's look at the little gap between the two, you know, and get back to your own personal experience. Exactly. I've had those kind of interpretations with, for example, ego death. You know, the first time I thought I had ego death, I'm like, oh, yeah, that must be ego death. And then I have a more intense experience. I'm like, no, this is ego death. And I have another experience. It's like, okay, no, that wasn't ego death. So it's like sort of, again, like you're saying, you're just comparing to experiences that you've heard before so it's, it's hard to tell about these things and they, they can be so abstract and very difficult to really concrete into reality you know yeah i mean it took me a while with my first sort of um lsd experiences to kind of um you know i was expecting to see kind of like the 1960s idea of kind of psychedelic art you know and <laughs> That's kind of not what you psych so I kept thinking like, uh, and then of course, you know, you've got all the old hippies going, oh man, the orange sunshine was so incredible when we took it and we saw this like huge giant, you know, sort of elephant with sort of Buddha arms and, you know, and I'm like sort of, uh, you know, taking my little blotters as a sort of teenager and thinking, ah, I'm not doing this, you know, this can't be the real deal, you know, and it <laughs> took me a long time and a lot of different sources and doses before I realized that, uh, you know, the way that you present, you know, and talk about and visualize and sort of express the experience is not the experience itself. Yeah, exactly. 
And actually, a, a question I want to ask you is that, like, when, you know, when I went to Peru and I had this San Pedro experience, and usually when I talk to shamans in that traditional culture, they they refer to San Pedro, and even peyote would have the same uh, similar treatment. They'll call it a, a grandfather or a masculine sort of spirit mm -hmm. or presence, and that that seems to be very common between a lot of people. And I can definitely at least comparing to ayahuasca, for example, it definitely has like a yin and yang, like polar opposite, more of a masculine figure. And that, I know that's just my interpretation. I'm not saying this is the objective truth, but there definitely seems to be some, a lot of similarities of people coming, to, uh, coming across these kind of masculine figures. Is the term mescaline related to the word masculine or am I just putting two dots together that aren't there? Is it just a coincidence? No, it's not. It's interesting, though. Uh, I kind of came across this quite a lot. One of the things I discovered, like, um, writing about mescaline is, like, um, I'd never re I wasn't really kind of aware of the men's movement, you know, and particularly and their engagement with psychedelics as well. But they're kind of a very focused on mescaline and particularly peyote and the kind of Native American warrior culture and the sweat lodge. You know, there's a whole mm -hmm. very masculine construction you know um no it kind of goes back to the word mescal which is a very confusing word um the reason it does that is that uh the first um chemist to isolate it um had uh he, there's a whole bunch of different alkaloids uh in the cactus mm -hmm. and he kind of gave them all different names like um you know peyotine and lofoferine and mescaline was one of them just using all the words that we used and the word mescal is kind of um it was used a lot for peyote and in fact aldous huxley still in doors of perception calls it mescal it's kind of quite uh, uh that, that's because i think he read a lot of uh, literature from that time but at the time it was a very confusing word like in the sort of american southwest and mexico because there's the um well there's the agave cactus obviously that you make tequila from that's called kind of uh you know mescal and me mescal is the alcoholic drink you know which tequila is an example of yeah uh, there's also this like little red bean called the mescal bean which comes from a completely different plant which is very very toxic and was used by um certain native american groups in vision quests and stuff and then there's the peyote cactus which was also called the mescal so you know when you go back to like you know what people were writing like in the wild west effectively at that time mescal can kind of mean anything it can mean like a strong drink or a poison or a psychedelic you know okay. so it's a kind of confusing term. right like plant and it can um vary so much <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's right and um uh, can you actually go break down the pharmacology a little bit of mescaline and how is it so different to other tryptamine psychedelics such as psilocybin and dmt and things like this yeah Sure. It, I mean, it's a it's a phenethylamine, which is um, to say it's a kind of different family of alkaloids, um, you know, which is made out of, um, you know, uh, kind of um, peptides, peptides and amino acids like phenylalanine, as opposed to, you know, tryptamines are made out of tryptophan mm -hmm. and others. So it kind of it hits the 5-HT receptors in the sort of same way, you know, give, well, given the limits of our knowledge about all the different subtypes of 5-HT receptors, uh, you know, it's psychedelic action and is quite similar, but it also um, hits the adrenergic system. So it's um, it's got more of a physical body load than the tryptamines. Um, so you get kind of um, 
you know, sort of uh, heart rate and breathing. You know, there's a lot of sort of physical intensification. Often kind of nausea is, is, is part of it as well. So it's much more of a, I mean, I think sort of visually it's, you know, it's extremely intense and, and beautiful, but it's also um, got a physical side because it's, um, it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier so easily as the tryptamines, uh, which is why you have to take a much higher dose. Mm. Uh, you're taking about kind of, you know, 200, 300, 400 milligrams. Uh, and this is, you know, same as MDMA, which, of course, is a phenethylamine that was kind of uh, discovered by looking at mescaline and trying to, uh, um, you know, sort of look for other, um, uh, you know, compounds within that family. Uh, mm. And for that reason, because it doesn't cross the brain barrier, so you have to take like a heavier dose, which makes it a heavier physical experience. Uh, it also takes a bit longer to come up. Um, it's usually... I find it very unpredictable. Sometimes it can come up really fast, but at other times it can be like a couple of hours before you really get, you know, a handle on how big the dose was. Uh, and it's long, you know, it's longer than... Uh, it's oh, longer yeah, than a, very it's long. 10, 10, 12 hours, you know, it's kind of a... It's an all-nighter for sure if, you, if, 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 that's the, if that's the way that you do it. Yeah, the, the last time I did some... Well, not the last one, but the one couple of years ago, it lasted about 16 hours for me. Mm -hmm. really intense and i didn't even take that big of a dose either so and i've heard other ex people obviously it was a much bigger dose that lasted 40 hours which is ridiculous yeah. i couldn't even imagine that not sleeping it's like am i just gonna be crazy forever <laughs> when yeah. will this go away now yeah, yeah and it's physically intense as well you know it's um you know and this yeah. is partly why you know and this is kind of an important part of it i think this is often the case in indigenous culture it's like with ayahuasca you know like Purga, you know, and yeah. it's kind of, you know, the purge is important. We kind of tend to see that as, you know, all the nausea and the vomiting as that's like a side effect. And, you know, the visual effects are really what we're after. But I think in indigenous frameworks, it's much more the same. And I think, um, I think phenethylamines are like that. You know, they sort of, um, they do in a way the same thing to the body and the mind. You know, what you're thinking and what you're feeling are kind of much more connected. Mm. With tryptamine, sometimes your head can be in a whole different place, you know, and, uh, and you know, and that's part of the, you know, that, that's part of what you want from a good, good cactus trip or a good mescaline trip, you know, is like a real kind of um, deep physical sort of massage all the way through, you know, and you can yeah. feel, you know, I usually feel pretty great afterwards. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's kind of an ordeal, but you've got to accept that, you know, <laughs> and uh, it can be pretty uh, intense and grueling at the time, but, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, you kind of bounce back feeling really, really great. And I think particularly in the Native American church, you know, the, which is very, very kind of uh, elaborate ritual constructed around the experience. I think it's just beautifully constructed to take you through it, to take you into it, to get the most out of it, and then to kind of get that kind of great warm glow after. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely find that, you, uh, well, for myself, that I get an afterglow. And I've only done San Pedro like a, a few times in my life, but every time I've kind of felt really great afterwards. And is there any like distinctive hallucinogenic, like in terms of a subjective experience, are there any distinct experiences that kind of differ from psilocybin and ayahuasca, at least in terms of the visual or maybe the headspace or the <clears throat> spiritual experiences that you have? Yeah, I mean, I guess they all have sort of slightly different um, visual signatures. Yeah. Uh, one thing I realized is how much more we as kind of, 
you know, Westerners focus on the visual experience, you know, and in indigenous cultures, you know, the visions are like, yeah, um, but that's not the whole point of it, you know, and, if, and there's even quite a thing in indigenous cultures that if you're getting hooked up on, you know, losing yourself in the visions, that's actually a distraction, you know, mm. you should focus yourself on the here and now and what's going on. Um, but compared to tryptamines, I would say, um, uh, I always think of, uh, mescaline and the cacti has been quite sort of solar you know it's kind of a sort of sun energy you see a lot of those kind of um you know beautiful sort of reds and violets and kind of those flickering iridescent colors in the spectrum and i think in terms of the energy as well i mean i always think of the you know when you're in the andes and you see a load of san pedro growing up in the mountains and they're just getting this intense tropical sun mm. you know and, um just kind of like bathing in it um and i always have uh, you know my sense is that that's kind of that type of energy for me sort of characterizes the experience it feels as if it's kind of radiating out of me um tryptamines especially ayahuasca always feels as if stuff is coming at me from outside you know mm. uh, yeah like, i would uh, agree with that yeah like you're being you know visited or assailed or whatever it is by some energy that's out there uh Mescaline, it always feels to me more like the energy is in here, like I'm, I'm the cactus, right. you know. Like more heart, uh, heart centered. I've, I've heard that. Yeah, before. And I think yeah. that's because you know, being a, uh, you know, being related to MDMA, it's also, it's also um, uh, because of its um, adrenaline stimulating effects. It's also kind of more euphoric. You know, mm. there's something. I mean, it can be quite physically unpleasant, but it's also kind of like something kind of radiant mm. and kind of really enjoyable about it physically at the same time. Yeah. Well, like, like you just mentioned before about how when you get too much visuals, it can be a distraction. And I, I came to that realization uh, quite a few years ago. And I'll, it, so even now when I do, like I don't, I don't really trip that often, but when I do, uh, I don't like to have that much of a visual experience because it's it is it's it's just like too overwhelming, too distracted. Then you just focus on the visual candy instead of like the here and now, like you just said. And that's something that I really appreciate. At least with Wachuma, uh, I haven't had peyote, so I couldn't compare. So could you actually just go into the differences? Because I've heard that they're almost like they're related, but in a way they're almost night and day. Like there are massive differences. Would you agree with that? What are the how do they differ, peyote and not really. I mean, I think I mean they both have um, lots of you know, a couple of dozen different alkaloids in there, of which mescaline is the main one. But they kind of so the entourage effect of the different ones is probably slightly different. Um, but I think the real difference is uh, with mescaline, particularly, is how you're taking it. If you're taking it on your own, it's very different from taking it, you know, in ceremony you know, or kind of in, in, in a group, you know, or, you know, that's very different from like taking it in a scientific context or mm -hmm. a sort of experimental context. Uh, I think when you take it on your own, you tend to um, get very, very lost in your own sensorium because there's so much going on, the visuals, as you say, and also auditory hallucinations a lot, kind of often hearing voices and, you know, like there's a sort of radio sort of, um, you know, being tuned and dialed and like different snatches of stuff and, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, and you can see like when people take it experimentally, a lot of the sort of reports, you know, people end up kind of lying down in a dark room because that's the way that's the way it goes. That's the way it takes you. Whereas if you take it in um, in a ceremony or with a group of people where you're all focused on something that takes you out of your immediate surroundings and into a whole different thing. So 
I think that's much more um, that determines the experience much more than the difference between San Pedro and uh, and, and Peyote. Uh, and the other thing I would say on that is, um, unless you have uh, an ethical source of peyote, um, like growing your own, for example, um, I would recommend working with Wachuma um, or uh, San Pedro because um, that grows kind of all over South America. It grows incredibly fast. It's really easy to cultivate. Mm -hmm. It's legal or semi-legal in most jurisdictions. Um, Peyote, you know, by contrast, grows in a very small area. It's under really intense conservation pressures. You know, uh, demand is really outstripping supply. Mm. So uh, I think, um, you know, San Pedro is, is, is the righteous way to go. And I think that, you know, the pharmacological differences between the two in that context are, are pretty marginal, pretty slight. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on isolating mescaline? Would you say that there it, it's virtually identical to having let's say wachuma or do you think it's a whole different experience because obviously wachuma and or just having mescaline in its cactus context it's going to have a lot more alkaloids that interact with each other so even by scientific definition of course it's going to be a different experience but do you find any kind of significant differences when you isolate mescaline by itself because i've never experienced this so i would have no idea yeah, I had not experienced it, but of course, when I started writing the book, it was important just for, for the reasons that you've just outlined to know this, because I'd always had this thing taking cactus that um, there's always this kind of level of nausea, which is to do with you're getting a lot of sort of, you know, slimy sort of cactus brew down you, you know, and I always had this idea that if you kind of took pure mescaline sulfate or hydrochloride that uh, you wouldn't have any of that. You'd just have this kind of much more LSD-like kind of, um, you know, clean visual experience. But then uh, when I took some mescaline hydrochloride, as soon as it came on, it was like, oh, okay, all that stuff is part of the mescaline, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, that's, that's part and parcel of the, you know, the basic um, compound, uh, which it is. So, um, so yeah, I found um, that experience of sort of um, pure synthetic mescaline much, much more similar to the cacti than I had been expecting. Oh, really? Hmm. And you, so you don't think that there is a, a certain price or anything for like a synthetic compound, or same, same thing, pretty much. All good. Um, it's uh no i think um i mean again it's you know the cactus is a different experience because you know you're you're quite likely taking it in uh, you know in the part of the world that the cactus comes from you yeah. know i mean kind of taking you know san pedro in the in the andes or in south america or uh, peyote and Mexico or the American Southwest is a whole, you know, it brings a whole lot more with it. But I think, um, you know, if you're kind of growing your own um, San Pedro, I guess the way to, to test it, if anybody could do, you know, there are kind of other species of peyote that don't have any mescaline in. Um, okay. You could, uh, uh, you know, they have, or they have like a tiny trace amount among all the other alkaloids. I guess you could get one of those and uh, inject it with some loud mescaline and do kind of see whether people could tell the difference between that and actually, you know, a, a sort of uh, peyote with, uh, you know, um, with, you know, with a good mescaline content. I would guess that you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Okay, yeah, it'd be interesting to, to know. Mm -hmm. um, with mescaline, because it's, you know, you call it the first psychedelic and 
well, I'm sure there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, it was the first prohibited psychotropic plant and also it was the first mm. discovered in the West. And is it true that, that it was mescaline that led into the, even the term psychedelic? Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, the term psychedelic was uh, was coined um, in a sort of letter of uh, a sort of letter exchange between Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond, who mm -hmm. was the psychiatrist who supplied the mescaline for his first mescaline trip that they wrote about uh, in, in, in Doors of Perception. And after that, then um, Huxley and Osmond corresponded, and they said, um, you know. We need a word for, the, for, for for this and LSD. It was at that point, you know, and uh, none of the words that they had were very suitable because it had come out through psychiatry. So all these words like hallucinogen mm. were kind of, you know, were connected to kind of mental illness, you know, because hallucinations are a sort of symptom of psychosis. And uh, so they started saying, we need a new word that isn't about kind of mental illness and psychiatry. And that's when they kicked around and came up with the word psychedelic. Wow. And, um, you know, wow. in 1956 or whatever. Uh, you know, and um, so I guess, you know, I mean, that's the sense in which I mean mescaline was the first psychedelic because, you know, when the term was coined, it referred to two substances. One was LSD, which had recently been discovered in the laboratory. And the other was mescaline, which had like this, you know, very, very long history going, um, going, going all the way back. And... Um, I think it's kind of um, so. I think it's kind of quite hard to apply the term psychedelic, kind of going back into cultures before, and particularly into indigenous cultures. I mean, we call ayahuasca a psychedelic, but we don't call tobacco a psychedelic, you know, because in our world it's not a psychedelic. But you know, that distinction in indigenous culture is not really there, you know. Mm. So if we try to say, what do we mean by psychedelic? Well, we mean something that expands your consciousness or something that puts you in contact with um, the spirits or, you know, whatever um, we would choose, you know, to describe it, you know, that would equally apply to tobacco or indeed to alcohol, you know. So, uh, um, so then you get into this thing where you're kind of going back into indigenous cultures and going, well, this is a psychedelic and that isn't, you know, but, we're, you know, that's just our, our distinction. It's kind of, uh, I don't think you can apply that. So uh, I think the word psychedelic, it's not a word that indigenous cultures use because it's not a framework that they recognize. Um, yeah. So I think uh, when we're talking about psychedelics and using those terms, we're talking about our own frame of reference there. Exactly. Well, because we're very mind oriented. Even the term psychedelic is mind manifest, right? So yeah um, yeah and, kind of, and, and our idea of the mind is a very modern thing you know i mean it's uh uh <clears throat> you know in, in indigenous cultures it's kind of crude to go oh well i'm having this mental experience because i took this cactus because this cactus has mescaline in right that's right, just, right it's just a chemical you know, experience you know just, just my brain like playing tricks very, on me <laughs> very crude and very reductive to people it's like it's not about you know yeah of course the peyote presides over the experience but you know the experience is also about the ritual it's about the people that you're with it's about what's in your mind and um you know what happens to you and what comes to you you know it's a particularly kind of direct communication and it's not uh you know it's not to do with a chemical alteration in your brain exactly that's just the cherry on top for them you know it's about the whole ritual being in that environment with your brothers and sisters and having this experience together and you just so happen to have this sacrament on top. Whereas in the West, we kind of tend to just 
overly focus on just the psychedelic, right? And then we remove the ritual and the traditions and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying yeah. it's, it's right or it's wrong, but it's just a, it definitely seems to be a, a common thing that we do. Yeah, and I think when you, you know, in terms of the healing as well, you know, the um, healing in indigenous traditions, they, you know, that's very important. You're doing this. It's not just something that's happening to you. It's a group experience that everyone's mm. having. These are the people you're going to be spending the rest of your life living with, you know, and, um, you know, it's, you know, so your journey is everybody's journey. Uh, and um, so, you know, and, 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 the, and the ritual is about kind of um, creating a framework where you can start to think about what's going on in your life and start to change it and kind of start to feel, you know, what those deep changes would mean and what they'd be like, you know, and, all that gets lost when we turn it into the sort of Western idea of um, psychotherapy, you yeah. know, because it always happens between a doctor and a patient <laughs> and the doctor is the medical professional. And if you're the patient, you just kind of lie there and you get given the medicine and, you know, it's all like um, headphones and kind of eye masks. And, you know, it's not, you know, it, it's not about so it, 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 it's you know all those other kind of sources of healing that are to do with the ritual and um, all the it being a group experience all get excluded just because that's the way that we do medicine. Yeah, yeah. Or even just being out with the elements and you know in some Wachuma ceremonies you can go out for a hike, you know, like climb a mountain and go out and be out in yeah. nature. You know, and I think that's a very important part of it. For me, that was one of the most profound uh, experiences that I have was actually just being out in nature and truly connecting instead of being just inside my mind with blindfolds on. And again, not saying it's necessarily bad or wrong, but I, I think we overly focus on that aspect of the experience, the mental aspect, you know? I think that's right. We kind of define, you know, the problem as being a kind of, uh, you know, brain chemistry dysfunction. And, you know, that's kind of in a way, I think that's not what, um, you know, psychedelics are, are showing. You know, I think in, in many ways it's, um, you know, I mean, Certainly, I've seen many more people have profound therapeutic experiences in a muddy field at night in a festival than on, other than on a you know, therapist's couch. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what impact has mescaline had on culture, specifically pop culture? And um, yeah, it's uh, it's this um, funny thing that you know by the time that um, psychedelic culture got going in the sixties. Mescaline had already almost disappeared. Mm -hmm. uh, it was um, uh, once you had mescaline and LSD um, to, to compare, and scientists were kind of doing trials and experiments with both of them. Um, then, you know, what was really obvious to them was that LSD worked at a much, much, much smaller dose. Uh, so the kind of science very much gravitated towards LSD, you know, partly because it was, you know, more economical, you know, and one little vial of LSD would kind of do you, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of doses. And um, but also because um, it felt like there was, you know, that was the one you were going to go after if you were trying to figure out what these things were doing in the brain. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't go for like the one that you have to take a big dose that kind of floods the brain. You go for the one where a tiny dose works because that's got to be doing something very specific at some very specific receptor. So by the early 60s, um, when people like, um, you know, Tim Leary started experimenting, um, 
mescaline had almost disappeared. You could kind of just about um, still find it. Uh, you know, if you had a PhD or a letterhead, you could order it from chemical suppliers. Um, but by the time you got um, going with like the underground chemists and Owsley and the Grateful Dead in the mid 60s, you know, they were just making LSD. Nobody bothered to make mescaline, you know, for the same reason as the scientists. You know, when, when a gram of mescaline is three doses, you know, a gram of LSD is like, you know, thousands and thousands yeah. of doses. So, you know, the, the, the legal penalty is the same. So who would ever make the mescaline right? You know, so. Um, our kind of um, psychedelic culture was really fueled by LSD, but everybody remembered mescaline, of course, because of doors of perception, and uh, um, you know people were aware of um, you know peyote and its and, and, and its use. So um, back in the fifties, when you could still order peyote buttons mail order, people like William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg and the Beats were experimenting with that a bit. So there was a little peyote scene among the among the beats uh, but by the time psychedelic culture really got going in the late 60s mescaline was pretty much forgotten uh i, it, I mean it was people remembered it and there's lots of stuff being sold as mescaline but i went through all the uh the drug enforcement agency in the states did a whole huge, huge kind of um sort of uh monthly digest of all the different drugs that were being kind of found in arrests and i never found you know i never found any actual mescaline kind of being sold on the streets. I think it had more or less disappeared by then. And um, so I think, you know, and, and that was this, that was this, what set the stage, I think, for its great, you know, most famous appearance in kind of um, psychedelic culture, which is Hunter S. Thompson in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, yeah. where kind of, you know, halfway through the story, you know, they're already on kind of, you know, coke and ether and acid. You know, he's got to kind of find some way of, something of kind of like you know take ramping it up to like this huge psychedelic peak and he goes yeah and then we got out the file of mescaline and wow. i think the, re the reason he uses mescaline at that point in the story is partly he did ha have a mescaline experience a couple of years earlier which he wrote up and you can see that parts of that write-up make it into fear and loathing but i think he also wanted something that everybody knew that everybody recognized that nobody had taken so like mescaline in 1970 when he was writing was the perfect like everybody knew that this was like a a major psychedelic but also they hadn't tried it so you could kind of say whatever about it and um you know i think that was what kind of rooted it in um psychedelic culture and of course the peyote what really rooted that was carlos castaneda writing at exactly the same time yeah uh, you know as uh, as hunter s thompson or at least the uh, book was published at the same time and uh that was kind of, uh, you know, and, and that kind of gave people the idea, all, all these ideas that, you know, you kind of take the cactus and you see this kind of spirit called mescalito. And this is kind of the way of you know, getting you into the world of the Nagual, of, of the, the, the shaman. So um, it's kind of, in a way, like um, the sort of two faces of mescaline, the sort of sacred and profane. Yeah. You know, we it carried into psychedelic culture this idea that mostly comes from castaneda that uh you know this is kind of uh, some you know this, this is kind of takes you into the world of the shaman and then this kind of much more profane idea from uh hunter s thompson that you know this is part of a whole smorgasbord of drugs that you can kind of go crazy with yeah that's crazy 
Uh, I haven't I've actually seen that movie. I obviously know very much about it, and I've seen like some scenes and here and there. Would you recommend it? Is it actually good? Uh, I love the book. Um, when I read the book, it was um, I guess I was a sort of teenager, and it was the first thing I'd read at that point that was not coming from this kind of hippie perspective. I mean, I was more the sort of punk and post-punk generation, yeah. you know. Never trust a hippie, you know, as as, as Johnny Rotten used to say. And, I was and more of a metalhead, so I understand. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I mean, if you were trying to get hold of psychedelics, and they're all, you know, at festivals and things, there are always these old hippies, and they always, they didn't, you know, they always wanted to tell you the right way to take it and how it was supposed to be a really spiritual experience. Yeah. And I was like, um, okay, that's that's fine, that's your way. <laughs> Shut up, hippie. <laughs> I'm gonna get <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> I'm really, I'm listening to you know Kraftwerk and Funkadelic and yeah. you know that's kind of what's uh, what's doing it for me. So um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was really the first thing about psychedelics I'd read that was like yeah, but it's it's, 19, it's the 70s now. All that hippie shit is over. Mm. You know, we, we, you know we're going somewhere much crazier and much darker and much more chaotic. And we don't kind of believe these people who are going oh if we just, if you just do it our way we'll save the world. You know so. Uh, so the book was, uh, and yeah, the, the, I've still got my very, very well-thumbed old paperback copy. That was like a real touchstone for me. Um, the movie, I, I saw it, but I don't remember it that well, I guess, because I remember the book so well. Yeah, and, fair enough. Uh, it's kind of, um, you know, like um, a lot of his, uh, his films, it's kind of, you know, um, Gilliam's films it's kind of very very scattershot and very imaginative but also kind of quite disorganized and yeah not too much stuck with me I guess I should uh, I guess I should watch it again but uh, actually when I was writing the Mescaline I read the book again and that was like a great experience I'd really recommend that yeah well I'll have to check it out I guess eventually I feel like it's kind of like a must in the psychedelic pop culture <laughs> it's uh, very short it's very funny yeah is there anyone that you wouldn't recommend to take psychedelics? I mean, obviously, with psychedelics, there are the obvious ones, like if you've got schizophrenia or these sort of certain uh, mental disorders. But is there any, like, particular dangers that you would say that that's, that can happen on mescaline? Like things like peyote and San Pedro? Yeah, I mean, they're, um, you know, I think... It it's not so much about, um, you know, sort of types of people as about where you are in your life. You know, mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a strange thing that we often encounter psychedelics first at the time when we're least prepared for them. Like, yeah. um, you know, in your teens, you usually, um, it's better now because you can go and check them out on Erewid and, you know, there's lots more sort of internet, you know, information, but, you know, you often encounter a point where you're very poorly informed. You haven't sorted out like the myths from the facts and you don't really understand what to do. And, you know, you don't have a lot of money and you don't have like a nice safe place to go and hang out. Mm. And maybe, you know, a lot of your friends are like not very deep friendships. And, uh, you know, I found it kind of um, easier as you get older. And, you know, when you get older, it's like they're not quite so, existentially shattering because you've kind of got a better idea of who you are and but also you can kind of take them in better more controlled surroundings and stuff mm. so i think it's um i think you just uh you know i mean 
people have to find their own way, you know, and I, I kind of don't go down the giving advice road, but it's just the obvious. Very it's, wise. <laughs> it's, it's like in, inform yourself yeah. and only yeah. do it with people. Only do it when you actually want to. Don't be pressured into it and only do it with people that you like and trust and love. Yeah. It's, it's, that's kind of that's the basic advice. That's a big one. Being with people that you would trust with your life, yeah. you know, because as soon yeah. as you if you're with someone that you kind of a bit paranoid about, oof, that can get amplified to a billion <laughs> under yeah, a psychedelic experience. You know, weird, weird shit can happen. I mean, you know, mm. when you start taking off on, um, you know, mescaline on the cacti or whatever, you know, you can quite easily have some sort of quite unnerving physical effects. It can feel like you're coming down with a really heavy flu or something. Mm. You know, you can easily, um, as my friend says, uh, flip over on takeoff. You know, and, uh, you know, just at that point when you start coming up, it's very important if you're with people who like are really rock solid with you uh, and you'll you'll step in to look after them and you're all looking after each other. That can be like a really great, powerful bonding experience. But if you're with people who are like um, kind of start itching away when that happens, you know, then it can mm -hmm. all go very bad. Yeah. It's all about the people that you're well, set and setting really goes down to. Yeah. And also, you know, knowledge and information, you know, just to know that if something, if you're getting some weird physical effect, just to know, okay, that's par for the course, that'll yeah. go. Is it, what about physically? Is there any kind of, is there any people who can have an allergic reaction or anything that's written in literature or so far it seems to be physically safe? Not so much. I, yeah, I mean, it's, um, there are no kind of really reliable effects, or, you know, sort of accounts of negative effects persisting past the sort of 12 hours of the dose or whatever. Okay. Um, but it can take people very differently, a lot of different ways. People can be very sick all the way through the experience. Okay. The, uh, I mean, back in um, 1890s, William James, the great American philosopher who kind of um, uh, was wrote brilliantly about psychedelics, nitrous oxide mostly, you know, he tried sort of peyote and he was really, really up for the experience, um, you know, and probably, you know, an incredible mind, you know, a person who would have had the greatest time and he just spent 24 hours kind of being sick as a dog and he was like, I'm going to have to take the visions on trust, you know, I'll just read other people's accounts of this, you know, so it can be, um, it can be physically pretty shattering, it can be an ordeal. Is that why a lot of these shamanic traditions recommend a diet? Because like every time I go to Peru, for example, they'll they'll recommend that you stay away from like red meat and certain foods. Maybe there's something yeah. to it. Well, it's also because um, what you eat, you know, eating is much more kind of um, sort of uh, important part of, the, of of your of the of life. Something that you think about. You know, all foods have many different meanings in our cultures. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll kind of walk into the supermarket or take away and say, oh, I feel like this, or give me one of those, or mm -hmm. I'll have one of them. You know, food is not like that in those cultures. You know, there's a lot more, it's a lot more conscious. Um, people say, you know, blessings before meals. You know, it's important to kind of acknowledge your food before you eat it. We've lost all these habits. Mm -hmm. So uh, obviously when people in those cultures are about to do this, then they think carefully about their food in advance. Uh I think it's pretty good. I mean, I think with, you know, with ayahuasca, which is a um, emetic, you know, you can expect to kind of vomit and that's um, that's part of the experience. And for some people, that's a very good part of the experience. Uh, you know, um, they kind of, um, yeah, I mean, if, if, you know, when I do that, I'm, I'm pretty... 
pretty cautious to eat, um, you know, nothing much apart from simple nutritious um, stuff, you know, for a couple of days beforehand. And um, in the sort of um, peyote in the Native American church ceremony, food is very ritualized. There's a kind of ritual breakfast that kind of you have afterwards, uh, which is um, kind of meat jerky, but kind of quite sweetened. It's, it's quite sugary, the stuff after, which is good because, you know, you've got to kind of blood sugar drop over a night of that, you know, this is all very well calibrated. The breakfast is big, helps you with that, you know, nice, you know, warm, radiant glow the next morning. So, uh, so yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, if we, but, you know, for people doing psychedelics on their own, I guess just if you pay attention to your body, you notice like, you know, maybe if you're tripping, you know, you probably think, I wish I hadn't had that double cheeseburger just before this. <laughs> it's just like, it's just like kind of listening. And I yeah, think yeah. That, kind of, that in indigenous cultures, that is much more codified and thought about more closely. Yeah, they definitely seem way more connected with their food and they're doing it locally. Whereas we, you know, we buy quinoa in Australia, but that's shipped all the way from Peru and we think that's natural, yeah. you know. And even just that whole ritual of being grateful and blessing your food before you eat, like that probably would seem weird to most people. But I don't know, it's, I find it quite funny and ironic how we have to get taught these things. But <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yes. And that's why, you know, also I find whenever I'm in that situation, I just watch and observe very closely you know listen and learn yeah so what do you think the future is of this psychedelic world what are some potential perils that we should avoid and what what are some beautiful potentials that you see uh i think um there's a rush at the moment to kind of corporatize it and commodify it um which is partly associated with sort of uh the medical and pharmaceutical industries, um, you know, because that's the that's the kind of channel through which, um, you know, these uh, um, uh, psychedelics are being made legally available. Mm -hmm. And um, also, you know, because we've kind of hit the um, hit the buffers in a way with uh, sort of most of the um, psychopharmaceuticals that we have you know antidepressants and stuff you know we've kind of we're now aware of their limitations and uh you know a big so there's a big cultural conversation that's pivoting towards psychedelics and talking them up and you know huge sort of corporate ipos and people raising millions of dollars to kind of corner the psilocyte you know and all that that just strikes me as kind of bad karma you know mm. uh, but, uh um you know i'm making money out of um psychedelics you know because they're not you know i mean many and this is the benefit of things like cacti and mushrooms are actually not part of the economy at all you know they grow you know you can cultivate those, those are the two that i resonate with the most as well yeah yeah so. but even um you know things like um lsd is not we know it's not expensive you know and none of these um psychedelics are patentable anymore um yeah. i would have thought that uh if you're kind of fixing onto the psychedelic culture and trying to make money out of it, the real money would be in kind of, uh, you know, retreats and experiences and kind of all those sort of, all that stuff around the um, chemical rather than the chemical itself. Right. And, and giving so, back to those cultures, you know what I mean? Because it's so yeah. common for the white man to just come in and just profit from the whole thing and then leave all these indigenous people, you know, high and dry, you know? So I think it's yeah, good to at yeah, least keep them in mind and, give back yeah i mean i would i would always hope that um 
you know, personally, I find indigenous cultures and the, the way that they use these things so interesting, you know, but a whole lot of people don't. A lot of people seem to be happy with a very, very simple sketch of, you know, saying, oh, this is a sacred medicine, and then they kind of go off and do their own thing with it, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, so whatever, you know, and we, we do do our own thing. I mean, Australia's great, cult, you know, contribution to psychedelic culture, I guess, is Changa, you know, that never existed before you know a sort of smokable dmt you know yeah that... uh julian palmer actually uh, he was my first podcast guest who was the, right. the founder of changa it's an interesting story yeah. smokable ayahuasca yeah. i guess is a crude way of of calling it it is and using a lot of you know acacias and a lot of stuff that was never used in that way before you know so i think i think i think it's cool for us as western culture to originate our own psychedelic styles and even our own you know mm. psychedelic preparations like that so yeah. um, I think that's, um, yeah, so I think psychedelics are kind of swimming into this kind of, you know, main, mainstream of our culture that's kind of, I mean, it's very obvious for me the time, I've been, you know, the length of time I've been engaged with this. I sort of first started writing about drugs and psychedelics in the 90s. And at that time, it was incredibly hard to get anybody to see drugs as anything other than a problem, you know, and mm. uh, you know, it was kind of always crime and mental illness. And, you know, now psychedelics, you know, you say that and everybody thinks, oh, you know, you know, wellness, you know, well-being, meditation, you know, it's become part of a whole different cultural conversation, um, you know, which is in a way is normalizing it, is mainstreaming it, uh, you know, which I think is... Um, I think is very positive. I think a culture that has kind of uh, a sense that these kind of um, states of consciousness and awareness and these experiences, you know, are something valuable, something worth nurturing. You know, I think that's, um, you know, that's a very beneficial direction. But of course, we're a culture that is, you know, heavily financialized and corporatized. And, uh, mm. you know, it would be naive to assume that nobody was going to start coming after psychedelics, um, you know, and trying to commoditize them and sell them back to us in ways that are kind of not authentic or true to the experience. Right. Yeah. And even like, you know, the, the real extreme purist psychonauts can only uh, they attach themselves to only the the really positive side of it, and then if you talk about the negative, it's like, oh, hey, what are you doing? You know, it's yeah, like that's right. And you know, I mean, it's great, like you said, like even these scientific studies, like on MDMA, for example, treating war veterans with PTSD, and it's a very positive thing. However, I've noticed that some people can misinterpret this data as, oh, MDMA is good for healing, therefore I'm gonna just take MDMA, and in sometimes scientific theory doesn't translate into reality as much as you would think because at least because i come from australia which is a lot of you know people who are overly enthusiastic on drugs and yeah in my youth i've met like 90 i would say at least 95 percent of people who have done mdma throughout my experience have gone like damaged from it like really mentally damaged from it not saying it's bad but again it's just uh We've got to be careful of framing it as like, oh, it's this positive thing. Oh, no, nah, it's just drugs. That's horrible for you. I think we need to be more neutral and kind of point out both sides. I agree totally. And I think, you know, this kind of positive glow around psychedelics is in a way a reaction against that kind of 20th century culture of drugs are bad, drugs are bad. Yeah. You, you couldn't say anything else. So now it's kind of almost turned around and everybody's, you know, like this is such a kind of righteous cause is psychedelics that, you know, why would you talk about these people having bad experiences? Cause I'll just slow things down, you know, but uh, that reminds me of like, uh, 
you know, when electroshock therapy started, you know, and some people were having terrible experiences and losing their minds and memories. And the doctors didn't want to talk about it because, like, no, 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 you don't understand. We can save, like, loads and loads of people, oh. you know, who are kind of locked up in mental hospitals. And we don't want to talk about these negative experiences because that will only slow the research down. You know, so we're oh. kind of there with the psychedelics as well. You know, that um, it's very hard to uh, separate out, you know, what's kind of, um, you know, the, the, the PR, you know, from the balanced um, story. And, uh, you know, everybody and, and everybody knows if you're doing a psychedelic trial that if you want to get it published in the papers, then at least the press release of the psychedelic trial has to say, you know, incredible results kind of discovered. If you say, kind of so yeah. Saying, yeah. Sort of, you know, maybe you know some small benefits, or maybe kind of it works for some people than others. That that's not going to get reported. So there's this kind of level of hype, which I think is also psychedelic experiences do respond to the you know culture around them. So I think at the moment a lot of people are getting into psychedelics in this, um, you know, kind of you know believing the hype. And for a lot of people, it is it is a much more positive environment to be encountering them than it was a couple of decades ago where you were like a deviant and a criminal, you know? <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, if you kind of, everyone says psychedelics are great and you take them and you have a time, you know, that's, you know, troubling or difficult to deal with or kind of really unpleasant. It's like, where do you go with that? Who can you talk to? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems like the pendulum has swung the other way. And it's actually a huge, huge part of why I even started my channel was that it, I know it's not in the 90s, but, you know, five, six years ago, but the stigma was much higher. I remember no yeah. one was speaking about, like ayahuasca, for example, I didn't know one person in my life who had even experienced it at all. So I was like kind of the first person in my friends and family group. I didn't know anyone. And now it's like, who hasn't done it at this stage, you know? Yeah. Kind of, it kind of feels it kind of feels like that and so when i again the pendulum swinging the other way so when i started it was like it was more i was i was guilty of just talking about the positive and the positive but then i had some really scary experiences and then i started talking about like the potential dark sides of it and of course it, not all people but some i would get some uh certain purists let's say who would i'd get a backlash and they'll be like you shouldn't talk about this or even the term like, oh, there's no such thing as a bad trip. And it's like, well, what about my friend in high school who killed themselves? Are you saying that there's no such thing as a bad trip? Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, I think if you're going to say there's no such thing as a bad trip, you've got to look at the other side too and say there's no such thing as a good trip, right? It just, it is what it is. Yeah. Or you can only say, say like, there's no such thing as a bad trip. And, you know, in a very, you know, you can frame it as a challenging trip. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And for Got most people, it, it is challenging and you can in integrate it and grow from the experience but there are certain people who don't grow from it and they just get like a really crazy horrific experience you know but i don't and know people who have a great time on ayahuasca you know lots of people you know you know who kind of go off to the amazon and have that ayahuasca experience and they come back and say I'm, that's totally changed me i'm a completely different person you know i really understand myself now you know, the longer that goes on, how many of those people, you know, if you know them a year later, do they not seem like a very different person from they were before they went? You know, yeah. I mean, I think people get this feeling that it's incredibly transformative, you know, because it is in the moment, you know, but the longer that it goes along, the more you kind of meet people who like have done their ayahuasca thing and thought they totally transformed their lives. And now, in fact, they're still the same as they ever were. 
Yeah, lo- I think that's why you, uh, long-term studies are very important instead of just asking someone how it was straight after the experience because a lot of times it can seem overly positive and sometimes it is. But again, like you said, you ask them a year later and not everyone changes the way that they claim. And I've been guilty of this. Even uh, earlier this year, you know, I documented someone's 5-MEO experience. And Mm -hmm. again, it was like, oh, the most amazing transcendental experience of my life. It did so much for me. And he he went on and on how amazing it is. I've got this now. But then a few months later, he told me that it was the worst mistake he'd ever done in his life. He got HPPD, he got like existential crisis, and he's like in serious mental health issues. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's why it's, you got to, yeah, long term. That's why even now, every time I have an experience, I don't talk about it until at least a few months passes because I might have a different <laughs> opinion about it. Yeah, no, that's quite right. It's very, um, that was one thing I learned from, um, Native American culture is that uh, I noticed when I was writing the book that um, there are so many kind of accounts of mescaline from a Western perspective by scientists and artists and philosophers and spiritual people. They almost always, it's not the first person, I I saw this, I had this experience, this happened, you know, happened to me. And uh, then looking around, saying, well, where are the indigenous voices? Where are the Native American voices who are kind of talking about their experience in the first person, you know? And they just don't because, um, you know, it's their thing is like, why would you do that? You know, this is something that happened, um, you know, to you. It's kind of like a really personal experience. Yeah. What would be your motive for sharing it? You know, are you trying to lay your trip on other people? Are you trying to sort of, you know, use your experience to validate yourself or to make yourself kind of like a big spiritual figure? You know, and if you really think about the reasons why you would want to share your experience in kind of detail. It's like, you know, there may be, you know, your motives that, you know, why not just leave it there? Why not just leave it in your heart? Mm. Maybe that's advice that I need to hear because even I've cut down as further along I go on this journey, the the kind of less I I speak about it because, yeah, and I get it. I get the overly excitement and, you know, uh, in many people's cases, like for, for me, for example, I was like a drug addict, I was depressed anxious i was like rock bottom so ayahuasca really did in many ways save my life so of course i wanted to share this experience with people especially Mm -hmm. because no one was talking at least in the youtube space there wasn't anyone who was talking about it and that was sort of like the the rebel at heart wanted to like why is no one speaking about this (laughs) sort of thing yeah well well, psychedelics are meant to make us think for ourselves, right? They're meant to give mm. us like a really powerful, authentic mm. experience, you know? So it always seems to be a bit of a shame when what comes out is just like, sounds like what everybody else is saying. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's a, it can be a very powerful glimpse into mm-hmm. whatever, whatever you want to call it. But it is that, it's a glimpse. You know, it's all about the integration at the end of the day. And that really, yeah. that's what really grounds the experience because it's not just about having this amazing psychedelic trip and then, Boom, all your all your life problems are fixed. It's I wish it was that simple and I kind of sold myself that idea subconsciously. Even though I knew I knew it wasn't gonna fix all my problems, but I feel like the way I was going about it, I I kind of thought it would, you know. You know, having been doing it for a long time now, it definitely enriches, you know, my life anyway. And I think, you know, it's that's true of all the other people I know who do it, which is usually kind of occasionally, but uh For sure. <clears throat> you know, when, when, you know, when all the um, 
when everything lines up and you have a beautiful experience in a beautiful place with people that you love, you know, that's like, you know, one of the, you know, that's just like a really kind of deep and beautiful life experience. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, no, hundred percent. Some of the most beautiful, amazing experiences I've had in my life were on these psychedelic journeys. But again, yeah. it wasn't just because of the psychedelic. It was always because I was with people that I loved. It was the community, the ritual, the adventure, the context of the whole yeah. thing, you know, exactly. I think that, and that's really what it's about. So, yeah, man, I think that's a good time to end it. I think we went down some pretty interesting yeah. paths. Uh, is there anything that's going on in your life right now that you wanted to share? Or like, what, what, are, you, what are you up to right now? Any plans? Uh, I'm, I'm kind of, um, well, I'm sort of in this lockdown world. I guess I'm, <laughs> it hasn't affected me very much. As a you know, freelance writer, I always work from home mostly anyway. And uh, so it's kind of welcome to my world. You know, this is sort of what it's normally like. <laughs> I guess it's been a very, very good chance to spend a lot of time in nature, you know, because, uh, you know, the, sort of the city and human culture has been, you know, the effects of, uh, um, of, of, of all this. Um, you know, the sort of viruses and lockdowns has been really negative and, you know, depressing. But actually, um, for nature, it's been pretty good. You know, there's no planes overhead. You know, when you've got nice weather and you get out there, you know, you can have a great time. So I guess I've been, um, uh, I guess I've been proceeding as normal. I'm writing quite a lot of stuff. Um, and uh, I just, yeah, I was just mentioning before we went on, I've just, just published a piece about uh, sort of the history of uh, magic mushrooms and their relation to um, kind of folklore and particularly sort of fairy culture, you know, why fly agarics always pop up in fairy stories and Alice in Wonderland and what's going on there. Uh, so I'm carrying on writing about this kind of stuff and uh, yeah, trying to keep it um, feeling good as we head into our northern winter. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. I'm I'm looking forward to reading it, man. Um, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me. Uh, you can find that on my Twitter feed, which is at mikejnet, uh, and mikej.net is my website. So you can go there, and uh, you'll find kind of uh, um, updates and um, you know a whole bunch of articles, including um, quite a few about psychedelics and uh, you know just my books and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'll leave all the, the appropriate links in the description box below. And yeah, if there's any other links that if you've forgotten to mention, just let me know and I'll put it in the description box and yeah, let you know when this is all up. Awesome. Mike, thanks again for jumping on the podcast, Mike. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot today. And so, yeah, definitely got to let it marinate oh, a bit. Yeah, that was a real pleasure to meet you. It's great to do it. Yeah, awesome. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. Yeah, fantastic. All right.